Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season three premiere of the Joni Mitchell podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Scott Johnson. It's a delight to be back after a longer than expected hiatus. COVID has changed everything, including this podcast, but it's back, and I couldn't be more excited to welcome my friend and the first guest of season three, multi-Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter Sean Colvin. I've said it many times, but there are two artists who inspired me to pick up a guitar and become a singer-songwriter myself. One of them is not surprisingly Joni Mitchell. The other is Sean Colvin, and I've now known Sean for about 15 years when she became the very first artist I ever opened for. I've been delighted to open for her a number of times over the years at venues all over the country, and she also joined me for a song on my YouTube channel, The Song A Day Project, a few years ago. We did a duet of a Bruce Springsteen song called Tougher Than The Rest. Sean's journey with Joni is described in this interview. She inducted Joni into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She made a record in Joni's house with Joni's then-husband Larry Klein producing. She's performed at a number of benefits with and for Joni over the years, and Joni is a seminal influence for her as well. It was a delight to share this time with Sean, and I thank her for it. Sean's tour dates have all been canceled due to COVID, but you can still see her on December 17th at mandolin.com. She'll be live streaming a holiday show and performing her 1998 album, Holiday Songs and Lullabies, in its entirety with other holiday songs and a full band. It's a great record, and the three mandolin concerts she's done so far have all been wonderful. They're professionally filmed, and the sound is great. And if you can't watch it live, your ticket gives you access to the shows for 48 hours to watch as many times as you want. Go to mandolin.com to get your tickets. If you're not familiar with Sean's work, I couldn't possibly recommend it more. I could just as easily be hosting the Sean Colvin podcast. So my recommendation is heartfelt. Thanks, Sean, and let's roll the show. Hello? Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm fine, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you surviving this COVID strangeness? Oh, I'm not getting sick. That's good. That's important. That's the top thing right now. Kind of about the only thing you can say. I think you can probably see me. I probably look a little bit like a Dateline blocked out person. I'm right in front of a window here. No, I can see you fine. Okay, good. Well, thanks so much for doing this show. It's the first time that I've done one of these in a while. I've been on hiatus with this particular podcast for a little while, but... um, I was watching your mandolin concerts, and you referenced Joni a couple of times, and I've always wanted to ask you to do this podcast, but, well, I just didn't, you know, I feel like I'm always asking. You were kind enough to do the Song a Day Project, a song with me a couple years ago, and I get to open shows for you from time to time, so I felt like I was always asking, but it felt like, uh, you know, maybe there was some Joni stuff going on, and maybe you had some (laughs) Joni on your mind, and I thought maybe the time was right. Well, I'm happy to talk about Joni any day. Yeah. So let's maybe start chronologically. When did you first hear Joni Mitchell? When? What was that first experience of hearing her voice for you? Well, I my parents had sent me away for a weekend church camp, which was really awful. <laughs> but I met um, another young woman there. I think I was... 13 and she was 14 or I was 14 and she was 15 I can't remember but she told me and I had brought my guitar and she told me to go listen to Joni Mitchell the clouds record Mm -hmm. and I didn't know who Joni Mitchell was so I went home and bought clouds and I was forever changed basically Mm mm-hmm was that the newest one out at that time, or were, was there other stuff that you could go kind of immediately to, 
to come. No, that was the newest one out. So I went backwards and got Song to a Seagull. Right. Which was the first one after after I got Clouds. But, um, yeah, Joni Mitchell's effect on me is profound. Profound. Was and is. Yeah. yeah. Um, just really looms large yeah. in my um, influences and and my my heroes. Very, like, supremely important artist. I, you know, I'm, I was born in the mid-80s, and so I came to her, I came early for my age, I mean, I was in middle school when I was into her, but the, you know, chronologically for her, um, it was right around the time Turbulent Indigo came out, so I just had so much stuff to go back, you know, through everything else up to that point, basically, by mm-hmm. then, and, there, and she hasn't released that much, actually, since that time, there's been maybe four since then. And um, so as somebody who was a fan, essentially from the beginning, I assume Blue probably hit you a certain way. Court and Spark probably hit you a certain way. Were there certain records that had either a surprising impact when they came out or hit you in a kind of unexpected way, you know, as you kind of were hearing her as they were coming out? Hmm, unexpected. Um, I don't know about unexpected. Um but they all have their own character to me, um, which has to do with the sound and the writing, the, the, you know, the actual sonic um, template of, of her albums and, and the writing. Um, Blue and the time in my life that the records came out. Um, Blue, of course, was a game changer for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, we were not immune to idolatry and the oh-so-titillating fact that James Taylor was her boyfriend and all over blue and, you know, mu- musically, guitar-wise, and was made reference to in that record. But um, regardless of that, uh, brilliant, brilliant record. Um, Court and Spark... Well, I could go through them all. I remember, um, I mean, that was, they've all had a profound effect on me. Hissing of Summer Lawns, um, I was in bad shape when that record came out. Um, I was very uh, depressed. Um, I was about 18 or 19 years old, I think. And um, I was was suffering my first really um, major bout of clinical depression. Uh, the first time that I had to, you know, um, take medicine and uh, really try to knock this thing out because it was um, it was critical, and I was given a medicine that blurred my vision. It was one of the side effects, and hissing of summer lawns came out, and I vividly remember listening to that album nonstop and I was unable to read the lyrics you know or, or any any of the liner notes or anything on the album cover mm-hmm. um, and it's a strange record and maybe all the stranger to me because of the circumstances but um, you know the Burundi drums and wild stuff on that record in in my opinion um, Shades of Scarlet Conquering and 
um, hissing in summer lines itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't interrupt the sorrow is one of my favorite songs in the world. Yeah. Um, Boho dance. I I don't know. It, it it may not be my favorite Joni Mitchell record, but I have very visceral memories of of, uh, of listening to that that record. Mm-hmm. That is a good, uh, I should have given you a heads up, although I think I did mention this to that at the end, there are only two questions that I consistently ask every guest. One is to do a top five Joni list. You don't have to do this now. You can maybe start thinking about it, but as you're no, I already thinking, wrote them out. As, as, as you're thinking of these individual records. And no, I, I, figured, I figured it out already. Oh, you did? Okay, well, let's do it now yeah. then. Go for it. All right, let me get my list. Uh, what I did was, um, I just picked five songs. Okay, yeah, sometimes people do that. It's pretty impossible, yeah. um, of course, but that's what I did. Um, here we go. And uh, Don't Interrupt the Sorrow, it's one of them. I think that might have been the first record that Jocko was on. I think so, too, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he... It's just very important melodically yeah. to you know the work that he did with her, yep. and that's very evident on "Don't Interrupt the Sorrow." It's just brilliant. It's mm. just brilliant. Uh, I I covered it, and um, the message, the you know the feminist message in it, and uh, you know it's it's real hard to pick apart her songs and and talk about what's brilliant and what's moving because they're just so deep to yep. me. And it's um, complicated mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, a, a, a good deal of them. Um, Amelia is high on my list. That one is a, everybody who does the song. Sorry, not in, not to interrupt it, but that um, everybody so far who's done a song list rather than an album list has had Amelia on there. Well, it's just, I think Hajira is my favorite album. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amelia... Oh my God! It, it the the Hashira record is is so much about travel, mm-hmm. and to invoke Amelia Earhart and the the sort of overreaching or overriding not overreaching overriding theme of motion and travel and displacement and freedom and to invoke Amelia Earhart. And these verses that refer to uh, anything from loneliness to enlightenment to... And then the mystery every time, you know, it was just a false alarm. Mm-hmm. M- make of that what you will, you know. Yeah. It means something different in every verse, in my opinion. But it's a gorgeous song. Mm-hmm. A gorgeous song. And it's just perfection. Yeah. Um, Free Man in Paris, I picked Free Man in Paris, because, well, Court and Spark was obviously kind of a breakthrough record for her in terms of some radio play, yeah. and um, LA Express, and kind of this pop sensibility infused with some jazz, um, and Free Man in Paris is just such a perfect picture paint you know a, a small picture of of the music business mm-hmm. you know um who can think of a line like stoke in the star maker machinery behind the popular song i mm-hmm. mean it's nuts 
and you know, it's it's just a great song, great song. Um, you know, I, it's really hard. I know to to um, to describe why Hajira is on my list. Um, again, it's a very long song, a lot of verses, uh, no chorus. Mm-hmm. Love that too. Same with Amelia. It's it's just transcendent. Um, and, and again, it's it's reflective. Hashira. Uh, mm-hmm. It's and and just lyrically, you know, white flags of winter chimneys playing truce against the moon. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And the wax rolled down like tears. Here's the hope and the hopelessness I've witnessed thirty years. And you know, these days I'm like, well, not even these days. I mean, it, it, almost for the past. 30 years, I've thought, she was 30 years old when she wrote that song? Are you kidding? I know. Um, I looked at the granite markers, that tribute to finality, to eternity, and then I looked at myself here, chicken scratching for my immortality. It's just massive, Mm -hmm. that song. Um, And so, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just too deep to put a word to. and then tur- I put Turbulent Indigo. Oh, that's a um, great one. As one of them, because it's so ballsy. Yeah. And I know, I think she's talked openly about the the inspiration for that song. Um, I don't know if you know it. I, I don't know if I do know it, actually. Well, there was, and I will be generalizing to a great degree and probably get some of the facts wrong, sure. but... In her native Canada, and I believe it was Saskatchewan, the province she was born in, there was an art school that, uh, I don't know if they wanted her endorsement or if they wanted to honor her. I'm not sure. That's right, yeah. Um, But their mission was they wanted to create Van Gogh's students, you know, and that pissed her off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. that's, and, and this song is an answer to it. You know, that's not how it works. Right. You, you don't raise Van Gogh's. You know, what do they know about moving in turbulent indigo? And and um, it's an angry song, and I, I love that. And it's a, it's a real artist's song. It's from a point of view that only an artist could have, you mm-hmm. know? Um, plus, it's just, you know, I don't even talk much about it quoting her lyrics a great deal here <laughs> not even touching on the music I was invited to do a, a Joni Mitchell tribute concert at Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. some years ago and I picked Turbulent Indigo to be my song and you know I, I thought I knew the gist of it musically and when I listened to it again and tried to make sense of how she was playing the guitar. It was impossible. It was literally, I had to just kind of make it into this blues song and and flail away as best I could. The guitar playing is stellar. And no one, just that alone, Joni Mitchell's guitar playing and guitar tunings and what she did with them, um groundbreaking and and I've never known the like of it any at any other time 
um, I spent many, many years trying to figure out her songs before I was enlightened to some of her tunings by a songbook she put out, which was For the Roses, that listed this, the tunings, actually gave you the tunings of the song. It was the first time mm-hmm. they'd opened that window, they'd opened that door. And it was, I mean, the heavens opened for me. Yeah. It's interesting that you, um, yeah, I was actually going to ask you about some of these tributes because there are a few that you've done over the years. The Carnegie Hall tribute, I remember when that happened. I feel like that was maybe 2000, somewhere between 2004, 2006, somewhere in there, I think. And um, I was in school at the time, but I almost went to it. You know, I was trying to justify going to it. Um, I did go a couple years ago to the Joni 75 concerts in L.A., um, but... Uh-huh. I didn't. I didn't go to the Carnegie Hall tributes. Um, I just couldn't justify doing it as a student somehow. But um, I remember, and, and as I was kind of preparing for this interview, I read some of the reviews, and you and Betty Levette were the two who were kind of credited as having the kind of highlights of that show. And one of the things—that's oh, nice. Yeah, one of the things. I mean, like universally, all of, all of the reviews that I found online. Uh, you know, there was, I mean, it's a tribute show. I would say the same about just about every tribute show that they can be uneven and that's nobody's fault. It's it, sometimes it's nobody's. I mean, I even felt like at the Joni 75 concerts, the lineup of the artists was all incredible. It's just the dynamic was different because it would be like a full band like Los Lobos and then Diana Krall by herself. And so the sound person was just like in this impossible situation of trying to balance everything you know, just lightning fast. So I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's just as simple as something like that. But, um, you know, that particular show, everybody thought like your handling of Turbulent Indigo was, I, I don't know what you wore, but somebody said, I, I don't know if you remember what you wore, but somebody said your outfit complimented the song in a way too. I don't know if you remember what you wore. I have no idea. Okay. I usually do too. <laughs> No, I don't remember. I have your I have your book here, Diamond in the Rough, which I'm going to suggest people go get. I'll get links for all of this stuff in the show notes here. But you do, at the end of this book, include what you were wearing at various like big moments in your life. And one of them was what you were wearing when you met Joni Mitchell. What was I wearing when I met Joni Mitchell? I can tell you. Uh, Betsy Johnson caramel polka dot sl- silk slip dress. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that now. <laughs> that's, that's yes, in, I remember that. That's in between um, meeting James Taylor and meeting Bill Clinton, by the way, in the book. Uh, yeah. That's a powerful trio right there. Yeah, I've met some 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 powerful people. I've been very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I remember now wearing that when I met Jody for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's actually keep everybody in suspense. Let's I just my mind works chronologically. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take us back now to kind of where we were when you were talking about when we were talking about basically those those records and kind of discovering them as you you know as you went through them. Did you back in those days? Did you ever see her live in the '70s or '80s? Did you ever get to a concert? Of yes. Yes. Uh, the first concert I saw of, of Joni's was, um, there are two different ones. They were both in the St. Louis area. One of them was outdoors at the St. 
uh, the SIU campus in, in uh, Edwardsville, there was an amphitheater. And one was in a theater in St. Louis. I can't remember the name of the theater. I think the, the concert in the theater was the one I saw first. Um, a group of friends of mine, I was in high school, and a group of friends and I drove to St. Louis to see her. And I believe it was the Court and Spark album because I remember her saying, no one has said boogie. And she did um, Raised on Robbery. She was like, you know, don't you want to? So that was her her boogie rock and roll offering. And um, we were just, well, taken. I mean, it was perfection. And, of course, and I remember what she wore. Uh-huh. Um, and I brought her a present. I'm, you know, such an uber fan. I made her a necklace. And um, I gave it to a roadie afterwards, uh, and he stuffed it in his pocket, and I'm sure it never made it to her, (laughs) but uh, I tried. Yeah. And, yeah, and then the second one uh, at the the outdoor amphitheater near St. Louis, um, a friend of mine and I, Karen, tried to get backstage to see her <laughs> before the concert. We were, you know, it was daylight and we were roaming the grounds trying to get in back of the stage and we managed to do it. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a kind of an outpost house um, a, a, a ways in back of the stage and, and we made our way to it and Karen was very brazen. All this was. And even then, I was reticent to intrude, you know. Uh, this isn't, this really isn't my place, you know. I knew that. And sure enough, uh, Joni was in, at this house, and she came out on the porch. Not for us. She just happened to come out. And Karen flipped out and ran over to the porch. And I didn't. I, I stayed behind and and then Karen spent a couple of minutes there I don't know if she was shooed away or um, if she if she just didn't stay that long but you know she came back practically crying and don't you want to know what she said I'm like yeah yeah I want to know what she said I was kind of embarrassed to tell you the truth sure and um, she asked her I was could have killed Karen she asked Joni Mitchell, and again, this must have been, it could have been post-Court and Spark. I think it was It was definitely the tour that they made Miles of Isles from. Okay. Yeah, that would have been about 73, tour. yeah. Uh, and Karen, the question Karen asked Joni Mitchell was in, just like this train, watching your hair, hairline recede, my vain darling, who is that about? <laughs> That's what she asked her. You know, so stupid. <laughs> and Joni said, it's about whoever you want it to be about. So That's a pretty good I'm answer. She didn't, yeah, it's a great answer. I'm glad she didn't humor her and give her a name. Yeah. So um, those are the my first two early concert experiences. Nice. Okay, so then as you started playing around, um, you, if I... From your from your book and from stuff that you've said in concerts, 
I, you grew up in South Dakota. When did you move to Carbondale, Illinois? In 1968. Okay. That's where I learned about her was when I, uh, after I'd moved to Illinois. Okay. Um, and so then you, you picked up the guitar. I think piano was maybe first for you, right? And then you went to guitar? Yeah, I learned guitar while I was still in South Dakota. I oh, was about okay. 10. Okay. I was about 10, yeah. So, when so you, I, was, I was doing pretty good by the time we got to Illinois. Yeah. When you first started playing around um, and started gigging in, in Carbondale, uh, were there specific songs of hers that you would do a lot? Uh, I know you've said at various points that you covered her, but you know you didn't do a ton of her songs, maybe. And I think a lot oh, of it well, was I was lying. At the beginning, when I began to earn money in, in bars, I covered Joni extensively. And, uh, you know, because at the beginning, it was, I, I really did cover her extensively to the extent at some point in my career, and, 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 and I, I had to kind of back off of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and get a life. But one of, um, one of the big things that happened when I lived in Illinois, and I was still in high school, is a friend of mine. Joanne and we were mutual Joni zealots and guitar players. Each of us, we found a guitar teacher, um, a college student who um, who taught guitar at the local music store, and word was out that she knew Joni Mitchell tunings. So we both went to see her, and she taught us one tuning, which was open D, not drop D's, but you know, total open D tuning. Mm-hmm. And out of that, we were able to play a lot of stuff from Clouds, Both Sides Now, Conversation, Chelsea Morning, and um, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So that, that took me a long way in terms of interpreting Joni Mitchell and covering her in my four sets a night bar gigs. Um, but I, I, I learned as many as I could and sang as many as I could. Okay. So were there any back in those days that you uh, kind of had such reverence for that you wouldn't go near them, or was everything fair game? No, it was all fair game. Okay. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there were some I couldn't do because they were too hard. Sure. Yeah, I find she's still... Um, I put I put a case of you on my first CD. I think everybody covers a case of you at one point or another. I wish I had chosen a different song than a case of you. Except it still is my favorite. I think, but um, it's it's just so hard to interpret her songs. I think there's just something about the way that she sings them that it, like nobody else phrases like her. And I don't even know exactly what it is. But she's a she's a really tough one to do what you're supposed to do with the cover, which is bring something unique to it while still honoring the song itself. You know? I agree with you. I agree with you. And I, I think it's just the genius of her artistry. It's it's complete the way it is and, and not many times not simple. Yeah. It's just not simple. You know, and her piano playing as well. Fantastic piano player. Mm-hmm. Um, innovative. I, I, I used to be able to read piano pretty well and I've fallen off and I uh, the For the Roses songbook also had all the piano arrangements to the note 
it was a great selling book and I learned Blonde in the Bleachers so I picked up that book again recently hoping I could still read piano as well as I wanted to and I couldn't and it's a very difficult song very very difficult um, piano song to play at least at least in my opinion and a lot of key changes and time signature changes and um, she's just uh, a genius and Mm. it's very hard to bring something new that not transcends, but turns it on its ear in such a way that um, you're you're enlightened in a different way. She 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 has the enlightening versions. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm still doing the the song a day project on YouTube where I do a song every day and. Uh, one of the things that I do every once in a while is I'll do somebody's, my version of somebody's record over 10 days to two weeks because for me it helps just to know, okay, I'm going to be doing this for the next two weeks. And I've done that with Joni's first four records now. And um, oh, wow. it's it's dangerous because you it's like painting yourself into a corner because when you start, you may know that first song, but you don't know if you can learn that song that you have to do 10 days from now. You know, you might be able to do all I want, but you don't know if you can do, you know, the last time I saw Richard. You, you just don't know. And you're, you're committing to it and saying, I'm going to do this entire record over two weeks. And I always kind of, I, I love that high wire act, but it's with her, it's more dangerous than just about anybody else. It's a cover, you know, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. Can you talk now about that first time that you did meet Joni? Now we know what you were wearing. What was this? What were the circumstances of of meeting Joni for the first time? I made a record with her then husband in 1991. Larry Klein was my second record for Columbia. Well, my second record period, mm-hmm. and. Um, he and Joni were married and lived in uh, Bel Air, and they had a studio at their home. Kiva was the name of the studio. So I met with Larry, and we got along famously. And I loved his work with Joni, and it was kind of you know a no brainer. He wanted to work with me, and why wouldn't I want to work with him? Mm-hmm. So, but you know, and 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 of course we were gonna make the record in his studio at their home. So that's how I met Joni Mitchell. And I'm trying to think of the, oh, the first time, it was really just in passing. I was at their house sitting in the courtyard, and I hadn't met her yet. And I don't know where Larry was, but for some reason I was sitting in the courtyard, and she walked through. And she knew who I was, not because she'd ever heard me, I don't think, but she knew, obviously, I was coming to work with Larry. And um, she just kind of said hello in passing and wasn't unfriendly, but didn't stop to chat. Mm -hmm. And, but after that, I saw her and talked to her a whole bunch in the house and we would all go out to lunch a few days a week to the same place and Joni came along many times and pretty early on in this adventure 
I just felt I had to say something to her, you know. So at lunch one day, fairly early on, I said, look, and I don't remember the words that I used, but I basically said how much she meant to me. And I was very short and sweet about it. I said, you don't have to say anything. I just, I need to tell you that, you know. And she said, thank you. And, um, and that was that. But I really got to know her, you know, to a certain extent because it was all very casual. And she would, uh, she would sleep in, so she'd kind of crawl into the studio around noon in her pajamas. And we'd, you know, have been working for a couple, three hours. Um, and Joni's a talker and a storyteller. So uh, she would regale us with with a lot of stories, and, and she's a great storyteller. Uh, I, um, you know, I saw her notebooks that she wrote in. Um, we talked about a lot of things, mundane things. She, but mostly, she told stories about her life and. Her storytelling ability is, is really off the charts. Um, so it was quite a special time. And when I left, the last day I was at their house and I was leaving, I was going to go back to New York. Um, she was on the balcony, the Juliet balcony of their bedroom on the second floor. And she would call me Shawnikins and... She said, here you go, Shawnikins, and she threw this um, antique Native American silver necklace to me, mm-hmm. and um, that was her parting gift to me, which, of course, I still have. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. You also, you included in your book um, Polaroids, or a picture of, I guess it's just a single Polaroid, but you probably have oh, yeah. keepsakes from that time, too. I think I have more than that one photograph, but that was that may have been one of the of two or so that I had of her. We would have you could you could pull the pol, pol, Polaroid out of the camera, and as it was developing before it was fully developed, you could take a nickel and use the edge of the nickel. I'm sure many people know this technique and draw on it. So that's what we would do. We would make these silly Polaroids uh, of each other. (laughs) And she did that one, you know, and Joni's a great artist. Yeah. A great fine artist. So the one I put in the book was one she, of her, that she drew on herself. Um, And I probably do have other keepsakes, but it's uh, the necklace and and the Polaroid are what come to mind. Sure. Um, I'm curious if you have any specific memories. I can probably jog your memory, and I, I assume you don't mind talking about this. You put this in your book, and you mentioned it in uh, the mandolin, one of the two mandolin concerts that you did uh, when you played Kill the Messenger, that she actually helped you with a line from that song as well. <laughs> well, to an extent. I mean, she basically just pointed out what was so ridiculously obvious. Um, you know, I... And, yeah, I mean, I said, uh, the line was, the lyric was, sometimes someone drifts by and our nets get entwined in, and she just went, the sea. 
And, uh, I, you know, looking back, it's like, what else could it have been, you know? But this, but the sea, but I was balking at that, I think, thinking it was simplistic or something. And she just looked at me like, I, you know, I had two heads. <laughs> That's good. I mean, you know, having Joni Mitchell finish a sentence for you, even if even if you would have got there in the same way, that's, you know, that's that's tempting. And you gave her a credit on the record, too, for some hand claps on Object of Yeah, she did some hand claps. And she actually sang something that we didn't use. I had a, a, a song called Object of My Affection mm-hmm. on, on Fat City, on that record that we made there. And there's a very old song called Object of My Affection. And uh, Joni sang it for us. So we had her sing it. We had her record it, just a cappella. And then after my song ended, we kind of like faded in her doing a verse of the old song, Object of My Affection. Nice. And I, I think she was fine with it, but we, I don't know, we decided it wasn't, just wasn't, you know, not because she did a poor job, that was far from the case, but it just didn't seem to work. So, you know, and you, you're going to put Joni Mitchell on your record, you want it to be exactly perfect and respectful and use her to her best abilities and so yeah that was fun yeah that makes sense so how did it wasn't long after that it was just you know maybe five or six years after that that you actually were the one who inducted Joni into the rock and roll hall of fame how did that come about and what memories do you they have of asked that me to do it and <laughs> i i'm to this day not happy with what what my induction speech okay um I worked, it was, it was too big a task for me. It was too daunting. There were no words for it. And I wasn't a speech maker. And, you know, I think I could do a better job today had, uh, you know, were it now. But I, I went off on this wacky tangent of comparing her to a character in A Few Good Men or, 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 or uh, quoting something from that movie um, that in essence had to do with needing her mm-hmm. on the front lines, you know, mm-hmm. of, of this thing, of, of this uh, beast that we call the music business, you know. Um, but I, I'm fairly certain I lost people when I was trying to do this, uh, this speech. And then I played uh, Free Man in Paris. Yeah. So that was quite an honor. And I knew she wouldn't be there. She did not accept the honor. But, um, so that was probably fortunate. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a very important opportunity. And, and uh, I would have liked to have done a better job. Well, okay, so both of those, the song and the speech, are on YouTube. Um, you know, oh, God. At, like, you know, the full filmed professional, it's not a bootleg thing. It's it's their rock and roll puts all of that stuff up. Not that I know anything, but it, it felt like those things are so, I don't know, so formal. And so I, I feel like when I watch induction speeches, it's, it's rare to see something that really seems authentic. And it just seems like people saying the things they're supposed to say, you know, um, so, I don't know, I appreciated what, what you 
said. I felt like, if nothing else, it had to be a kind of stifling room to play to. Absolutely. It was extremely intimidating. Yeah. I don't know who was out there. I mean, everybody. Yeah. You know? No, it was just, it was too much for me. I, I uh, it, it was, it was, it was too large for me to get my, my head around and to feel, I just didn't feel worthy, you know? I, I, uh, I was honored, of course, but, and I was on the road, so I'm writing this speech on the road, and I don't know where I came from or where I went afterwards. I, I, I don't think I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Those things are, those things are always interesting. It's, and going from one artist to another, I, you know, it's different when you're actually in the room, I'm sure, than how they put it together in a package when they, when they show things. But it also seems like, I don't know, it seems like in a lot of cases, nobody's really completely focused on this person. They're already thinking about who the next person is in a way. I don't know. Um, well, okay, so correct, you know, fill in any gaps that you notice that I'm missing, but timeline-wise, the next connection that I found between the two of you was, I have the CD in my hand, Stormy Weather, I don't know if this rings a bell, this is the Don Henley, uh, thing for the Walden Woods Project. Sure, sure, I remember it well. Yeah. How did this come about, and what was this, what was this a benefit for? Obviously, it was Don Henley's organization, but... Um, it's a it's a very unique for anybody who doesn't know it's ten it's ten women who Don Henley gathered to perform it's Gwen Stefani you Paula Cole Trisha Yearwood Sandra Bernhard Cheryl Crow Natalie Cole Stevie Nicks Bjork and Joni um, okay. so what was what was that evening like how did that all come about what were your experiences um, that was Don's project and I believe it was um for the Walden, it doesn't say on the record. It says Walden Woods Project and the Thoreau Walden Woods Institute. Project. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was quite the the event. Um, we all sang with an amazing orchestra. Uh, Larry Klein was the musical director. Vince Mendoza was the arranger and the conductor, and he was a brilliant arranger. I think he was the conductor. At any rate, he was certainly the arranger and, and Vince Mendoza, and he's quite incredible. And the the um, format was that we all do standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was the the theme, and that's how it was done. And it was it was a heavy thing, you know. That was quite a group of of women and. Um, very few of whom I think were used to singing with a full orchestra mm-hmm. live. So, uh, and I was pregnant, mm-hmm. and so was Sandra Bernhardt. Um, not that that has anything to do with anything. I just remember <laughs> it well. So, uh, yeah, and and I thought I I did a a, a pretty good job because. Um, they, at least one of those songs came. I think it was but beautiful that came out on the record. I also did one for my baby and one more for the road. Um, but you know, Bjork got the sweet spot because she got to do a song with Joni. Yeah, which was incredible. Uh, it was it was a great match, and um, well, it was just a, it it was a great night. And then there was a fundraiser afterwards. You know, and. Uh, uh, where uh, all the artists and guests were there bidding on things. I remember Cheryl 
bid on writing a song with Henley <laughs> and uh, just stuff like that. It was it was quite fun. Nice. It was it was it was yeah, it was special. They uh, yeah, your version uh, you know of but beautiful I think is definitely the highlight of this record. I wish they had put the full the full show on here. They only put one of the songs from each artist, which I guess maybe they didn't have time to put everything and didn't want to, you know, have one person at two songs and one person have one, you know, there are reasons for all yeah. of this, but, um, yeah. I wish, I wish they had put on that, uh, duet too, because that was another thing in the reviews that everybody said it was so kind of otherworldly. They said Bjork in general, her performances were, she kind of managed to break the the formality of this event and kind of turn it into something else but i never really got a sense of what it was that uh, she did that was so different from yeah, she else. just did a bjork thing you know <laughs> yeah i mean she's she's not she can't conform it was great yeah it, w- it was great it was bjork you know and mm. they were a good pair and i think that was be you know singing with the full orchestra like that that's kind of what Joni has credited um with inspiring her to do those later records uh both sides now and travelogue was singing that night just kind of energized her she actually has an appearance uh that again you can find on youtube if you want uh Joni was on uh rosie o'donnell's talk show and she told this story about her dressing room was you know three flights up And she had kind of complained about it early in the day, you know, how hard it was to get up there. But she said after her set, she ran up and she was taking the steps two at a time and realized how energized and happy she was. And she said she kind of felt that among everybody, all the performers that night, that everybody was just kind of giddy with the excitement of singing with this full orchestra. Yeah, it was magic. The sound was great. The venue was beautiful. By sound, I just mean sonically, obviously... The arrangements were exquisite, and people did just great. All the women just did stellar jobs. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, it was it was a very magical evening. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then, um, not long after that, we have a, a variety of tributes. You did the uh, what I think of as the TNT tribute because it aired, I think, on TNT. Um, I think that was right around the time that uh, Both Sides Now came out because I think Joni actually performed Both Sides Now at the end of that tribute with that full orchestra. But this was uh, another tribute. You and Mary Chapin Carpenter paired up and uh, James Taylor joined you for one of your two duets, but it was another kind of really well put together tribute that was filmed uh, for for television. I don't know if they ever released that on, on DVD or anything like that, but... Um, what do you do? You have any specific memories of that tribute? I believe that was A and E. Oh, okay. It could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I remember Joni sitting up in a in a box, you mm-hmm. know, a box balcony seat, and they allowed her to smoke. <laughs> so Joni was up there looking down on upon all of us. At one point, she ate a banana. I remember that. Um, as you know, uh, very nervous, very, very, very nervous to have her just up there as an audience member. Elton John was very nervous. He's, I remember him saying it's like singing, it's it's harder than singing for the Queen, or I'm more nervous than when I sang for the Queen. Mm-hmm. What else do I remember? I Well, uh, let me see if I remember anything specific about Joni besides just being amazed as usual. Um there was a, 
there are a lot of celebrities in the audience and this is really apropos of nothing it has nothing to do with Joni but you're asking so uh, and as soon as the lights came up and the filming was over um, there was a particular celebrity in the front row and, and we were all standing together the performers because we had all done a group performance you know and I believe I was right beside Joni if not right beside her only a couple people down from the center and this celebrity marched up to the stage and pushed me out of the way for a photo op literally physically pushed me out of the way and uh, I, I have a picture of me sticking my head between that person's head and uh, I don't know if it was Joni or James or something, just kind of sticking my head in anyway, because I'd been like literally shoved. So that was, that was, uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah. I actually, one of the most, it might've been the most recent time that I opened for you at the Dakota jazz club here in Minneapolis. You told that story and the audience kind of begged you until you said who it was. I won't give it away now because I know you probably yeah, don't, don't want to know. Yeah, don't give it away. Yeah, that was an intimate setting. I'm not going to put it on a podcast, yep. but I'm sure but, people might be able to figure it out. Yeah. But I will say, there was when you did say who it was, there was this kind of murmur of, yeah, that makes sense. Nobody was <laughs> particularly surprised. Well, it was a memory, you know, I'm over it. Yeah, but it was it was a it stands out. Um, that was that was a magical night too. I thought everybody did a great job. And yeah, was it the Hammersmith Ballroom? I think. Yeah, where it was. That sounds yeah. right. Um, yeah, I mean, and that one in particular, uh, compared to you know what I know from the half of the half of the show that they put out on here, at being in person at the Joni seventy five versus what they put on the record, um, you know it, they that show just had some really unique, I mean, Cindy Lauper's version of Carrie was, you know, again, like taking that song in a direction that you would n- yeah. never think to take it in normally, you know? Yeah. Um, brilliant. But you, you and uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter got to do a couple of songs. Um, and actually that, I don't know that this is a great story, but I, I did want to mention, so I opened for you one time at the Ark in Ann Arbor. And there was a woman in the audience, I'm sure you won't remember this, because this was a while ago now, this was probably 10 years ago. And there was a woman in the audience who was screaming out, begging you to play Chelsea Morning. And you said, you know, you were polite about it and said, sorry, I, I don't know how to play that one. And the woman kept screaming back, I know you know how to play it. I know you know how to play it. And it really got to that point where the, you know, the audience is, it, it's, it starts to feel uncomfortable for everybody else in the room because she kind of asked two or three times. And I was with Carolyn backstage and I, I whispered to Carolyn, I was like, I know why that woman is saying that. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Sean and Mary Chapin performed that at, the, at, that, at this particular tribute. They did the Big Yellow Taxi and Chelsea Morning. At one time in my life, I did know Chelsea Morning, but I, I couldn't play it now. I don't know if it was you or Mary Chapin Carpenter kind of said, we really wanted to do Amelia, uh, but, you know, they wanted somebody to do the, the big hits, too. And so that was maybe kind of a package deal that you would get to do Amelia if you got to do, if you were willing to do the other one as well. Yeah, that's about right. 
And then, what about, have you, I, I could be remembering this wrong. I feel like maybe there was a social media post where you mentioned that you had seen Joni sometime within the last few years since her, since her aneurysm. Is that true or am I yeah. remembering that wrong? Yeah, no, I, I had uh, dinner with her two or three times. Yeah. Oh, nice. How is she doing? Yeah. It's been a couple years now since I've seen her and, and uh, I plan to get to L.A. more this year. But obviously, fate had other ideas. Uh, she's doing good. Um, she's sketching a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or this was, again, this was probably two or even, maybe even, no, two years ago. And, uh, you know, reminiscing and we were having dinner and I asked her, Joni, did you like the Beatles? You know? And she said, I never really got it. And I said, well, who did you idolize? You know, like, I really didn't know. Who was she, you know, who made her just go nuts? And she said it was Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. And so I go, well, let's listen to them. So I pulled them up on Apple Tunes, or iTunes, excuse me. And I said, which record do you remember? And she said, I remember all of them. So I just picked a greatest hits or something. And she just started singing along mm-hmm. to every song. It was great. And at the time, uh, they had honored her. They had just honored her in Saskatoon, where she was born, by uh, naming a boardwalk uh, along the water after her. And they also... Um, the particular indigenous tribe there made her an honorary member and um, gave her an indigenous name. And she wasn't able to attend this ceremony, but they had videoed it all, and we watched that. Uh, we, We watched that. She was very, very proud of that because apparently there had been an effort to honor her in years past, it kind of fell flat. I don't know what happened, but um, and I don't even know what that means. I just know there was a disappointment mm-hmm. uh, at some juncture. But this was was beautifully done and quite an honor for her. So that was really special, um, just to see her delight and her pride in that. And I believe the name she was given was White Bear. Hmm. Because I tried to find something online, like a piece of diamond jewelry or something that was a white, I think it was a bear, and I was not successful. Well, those are, those are nice memories to have. I'm glad you've gotten to spend some time with her. It seems like she's doing really well. Brandy Carlisle actually spends, or I don't know since COVID, you know, if, if she's spending time with her, but she had been making quite a few posts about spending time with her, kind of as she was... Brandy did uh, the Blue Album uh, some, uh-huh. somewhere in L.A., and Joni came to that. And it seemed like there were there were all sorts of posts about parties at, at Joni's house that were kind of becoming a regular thing. And it's just good to know that she's probably feeling pretty, you know, pretty much back to normal uh, from the sounds of things, which is, of course, great. That's what you want for her. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's quite miraculous. Yeah. 
Um, so, uh, let's see. We already did the top five. Thanks for thinking of that. The only other question I always ask people is, what else are you listening to these days? Have you found anything during these COVID times that, uh, uh, you know, has become a new find for you? Not really. I And honestly, I haven't been listening to a lot of music. I mean, I listen to the Beatles channel when I'm in the car, pretty much. But I've been writing, and and uh, I've mostly been listening to like podcasts and and audio audible, you mm-hmm. know, books on not on tape, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, wait, there was something. Wait a minute, it just came into my head. Oh, I was on a long drive recently, and I listened to Blood on the Tracks. Mm. Revisited that one. Um, which is just made an even bigger impression on me this time than it did when I first, than it, you know, bigger than, than when I even first heard it. It's just so brilliant, Mm -hmm. but not really. I've kind of been more interested in creating the music than listening to it. Okay. Well, since you dropped a little nugget, I won't, I won't push too hard. But anything, is there, uh, you know, are you feeling like it might be time to make a new record? Yeah, I do. It's just uh, the circumstances and how that gets done right now. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. But there are ways. Yeah, good. Well, that's exciting news. I have loved your mandolin shows. You've done three so far, Fat City in its entirety, the movie songs, and the last one, which was kind of the, the storyteller. Right. Okay. Yeah, those are all great. Are you? I know you're doing a Christmas one. What's the date of that one? It's December 17th, maybe? Yes, that's right. Okay. December 17th. And again, I'll put the, the link so people can buy tickets for that in the show notes. If, if COVID can, I mean, obviously for many reasons, we hope it doesn't, but if COVID continues on into the first, you know, winter, spring part of the year, they don't really think we'll have a vaccine until, you know, best case scenario is maybe April or May. Do you think you'll do more of those? Any chance? I don't know. More? It depends. You know, it's the wild west out there right now. Mm-hmm in terms of gigging so i would definitely do more of them it's just kind of what the market will allow you know are, are people are the, is this satisfying to people uh, you know how often do they want to show up for a virtual concert and um how do you keep it interesting yeah and um you know are there we're all just kind of trying to figure it out as we go in terms of how to reach our you know give some some product and content to our our fans yeah and 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 and, you know and 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 earn some money at the same time right right because all my work is canceled until next summer Mm -hmm. so you know we're not looking at anything anytime soon um and so yeah it's i just call it the wild west you know yeah everybody's Figuring out how to how to do stuff, and and the, and the real breakthrough will be when there's the technology for us to remotely sing and play together, right? Uh, without having to wear headphones and listen to tracks and and things like that. Um, I did a a Zoom concert with Lyle where we were both in our respective homes, yeah, and we each had. A, black backdrop and we, we made it look nice you know yeah that was great um, but it was just a song swap and we 
have done ch- uh, tours together and we certainly can sing and play together so that's frustrating yeah yeah that was great I mean I thought that show was great too um, thank you as somebody who's firmly in your camp as somebody who has bought tickets to those shows you know one of the things that I loved about that was I mean the movie night thing was a great thing because that's something we wouldn't ordinarily be able to to hear and see you do I don't know if that's a show that you would consider touring under different circumstances right so the idea that you're doing it in this format it's it's great because we get to see you do this very unique thing that feels like it's once in a lifetime it feels like it's not something you'll keep doing well it's something i've always wanted to do but i i didn't think it could you know a tour could really sustain it or it could sustain a tour i guess is a better way to put it so this was really great opportunity just to do a one-off and have a theme yeah that 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 you know that was movie songs because I love to do them. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed uh, Lucinda's doing this long series with them now. Did you see her thing that she's doing? Uh huh. Because you know she's doing like a Tom Petty night, a Bob Dylan night. But one of the other things that uh, was that she's doing is there, and it's it's different in price too. But you know you can get vinyl packages, you can get CD packages of the shows and right. things like that, which is you know. I don't know. It's a it's a very interesting time. Like you say, everybody's just trying to figure out what people are interested in. But um, you know, I'll keep I'll keep buying tickets to your shows. Oh, thank you, Zach. So, um, well, thank you so much. Is there anything that we overlooked of your time with Joni? Anything else, kind of in a broader sense, that you wanted to say about Joni, or do you feel like we covered everything? Not that I can think of, but there is one song I've taken to doing. In the past year or so, uh, I was asked to be part of a panel for Maricana Fest uh-huh. uh, about uh, the female influences, the, I forget how it was put, the theme, um, sort of the mothers of our, you know, uh, who, who, who were our musical mothers kind of thing. Sure. Um, for want of a better phrase. And and I, I knew I had to do a Joni song. And that's just what I, that was what I had to do. And so I got out my For the Roses songbook and uh, took a look, because, you know, there's a lot of different tunings, and took a mm-hmm. look, look at those tunings again, and I figured out For the Roses. So I have done that song a few times now, and, you know, just live from home and at that, for that panel, and a couple of times on my tour with Mary Chapin Carpenter right. a year or so ago. And yeah. So I resurrected that one. And, and that's pretty, it's, it's a pretty cool thing because I really wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't touch any of them for a long time. And uh, so it's, it's really fun. Yeah. It's really fun to do that song, yeah. Well, it would be hideously presumptuous of me to suggest something like, you know, there maybe there's a theme for a mandolin concert too, a Joni night, or even a Beatles night or something like that, you know. There's there's something in there that, you know, people would be interested in. It's a question of whether you want to go down that road or not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just try to keep thinking of things that are interesting to me and hopefully would be interesting to other people that I could do well. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and For the Roses, too, is such a unique one. That actually, I think, I, I've as many people now that I've asked for their top five list, I've never actually made one myself. But I think 
I think both the song and the record for The Roses, if I was doing either side, would probably make the list. I feel like For The Roses gets ignored a little bit, being in between Yeah, two. I can't believe I didn't even mention it, because it's it's phenomenal. It's, I mean, just Pat, where it is, you know, in between Blue and Court and Spark, her biggest critical hit and her biggest commercial hit. It's, it's understandable why it uh, got overlooked, although there are brilliant, brilliant things on For the Roses. Absolutely. Well, Blonde and the Bleachers is on For the Roses, I believe. Yep, yep. But yeah. I mean, ju- and, Judgment yeah. of the Moon and Stars, I mean, that's kind of the first one where she did the full orchestration, you know? I mean, yeah. amazing. Crazy. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. And, amazing. It does feel in some ways like a slightly, I don't mean this in a negative way because this is actually one of the things that I've grown to love about this record and makes it one of my favorites, I think. But it feels in some ways like a slightly transitional record. It's kind of the, it it plays perfectly. Like if you play Blue into For the Roses, into Court and Spark, it's kind of seamless. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you turned me on and a radio is on For the Roses. Yep. Which was was a a radio-friendly tune. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I, you know, the first time I met you, I told you this, but I'm going to say it for everybody else. There are two reasons I am a singer-songwriter. One is Joni Mitchell, the other is Sean Colvin. So it's sure nice to talk to you about Joni Mitchell. So the first time I ever opened for you was in Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater. And it was kind of last minute. I think the gig was maybe somewhat last minute. It kind of was like a a date that was tacked on, you know, between other tour spots. So th- they needed an opener. And I, I don't, I don't really remember the circumstances of getting asked, but I had never opened for somebody before. Again, you loom as large to me as Joni does to you. And so it was, I was like a fish out of water. And the guy at the venue actually sent me an email the night before. And he said, look, you need to, you need to know that as an opener, because you've not done this before, you're not going to be best friends with the headliner and you need to really keep your distance. And he kind of scared me, actually. And it, it got me to the point of like uh, feeling like don't speak unless spoken to, basically. And so I just kind of sat there in my dressing room pretending to read this Neil Young book, like the first page over and over and over again, just hoping that I could meet you. But they had scared me so much I didn't want to say anything to you. And so then Carolyn came over and said something to me. And I said, if you don't mind, could you just tell Sean that I feel about her the way she feels about Joni Mitchell? And Carolyn looked at me and she said, why wouldn't you tell her that? And I said, well, they they told me not to. And they said, who told you not to? They said, Sean would be mortified if somebody said that on her behalf. No, you know, go talk to her. And so I did, and you sat down, and you, you spent time with me, and you spoke to me so kindly, and I always appreciated that, so. Uh, oh, well, good. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> yeah, they just, they just really scared me that first night. It was like, I was afraid. It was like a don't look in the eye situation, and that was not, of course, what you wanted, or yeah, unless it was, and I don't know. But um, Oh, no, it's always, uh, it's, it's never a, a burden to... To be complimented. So anyway, I know I've I've said that many times to you over the years, but uh, it's it's true. So it's great to talk to you about Joni Mitchell, and it's great to hear your insights and these very uh, specific uh, experiences you've had. Again, you're the person who inducted Joni Mitchell into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'm I'm so glad that you could be a guest on the Joni Mitchell podcast. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks and so much. I'll talk about Joni any day, all day. Yeah. Well, I hope things keep going great for you. I, uh, I hope to see you soon. I, I hope COVID is done for so many reasons soon, but uh, I'm excited that you might have some new music coming out soon, too. That's exciting news. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited, too. Well, well, thanks. thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care. All right. You, too. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye.
you'll see Arbiter's first name And the bumping of the logs And the moon swept down Like water lagging in deep spots